You're listening to the Between You and Me podcast, brought to you by JesusWire.com, with your host, Jessica Morris. Hello, welcome to another episode of Between You and Me. How good was last week's episode with John Mark McMillan? He dropped so much truth and I loved it. Thank you so much for tuning in, guys, and really enjoying it. It's been awesome to hear your thoughts about the Christian music industry and its creative process and also about lyrics and stuff like that. I've loved your feedback. This week we have an epic episode as well. We are featuring Audrey Asad. Audrey has been in the Christian music industry for nearly two decades now and she has seen the ups and downs of it from living interstate to living in Nashville, uh, being signed to Sparrow Records to being independent and she's one of the most honest artists out there. She talks very openly about her struggle or she would say maybe even a loss of faith at times. She also speaks about racism and segregation in the industry and talks a little bit about how the Syrian civil war and how America's response to that really influenced her latest album Evergreen and her personally as an Arab American. Those of you who follow Audrey on Twitter will be super familiar with how vocal she is about issues like immigration and she doesn't really hold anything back. She tells me a bit about why that is. She also dives into her own struggles with pornography addiction and why she chooses to speak about that now. Audrey is also one of the few Catholics in the CCM industry which gives her a really unique viewpoint and something as a Protestant that I really appreciate. I love the fact today that Audrey is so comfortable in her own skin that she really just opens the door and lets us in and if you listen to her music you'll get that too. There's a real purity in Audrey's music and I think that's because she is so vulnerable. She's just like that in real life too and I can't wait for you to hear it. So I hope you guys enjoy today's episode. This is Audrey Assad. Anxiety, doubt, struggle, injustice. Audrey Assad is familiar with all of these off-taboo concepts. Growing up in a Protestant home with Syrian and American heritage, the now Catholic singer is accustomed to wrestling with topics many musicians sweep under the rug. These naturally came out in her music, and after recording a demo of 10th Avenue North Drew Middleton in 2003, she made the move to Nashville in 2008 with the intent of pursuing a music career. Following the release of her EP Firefly, she met fellow Catholic Matt Marr, and after joining him as a member of his touring band, she made Nashville her home permanently. Signing as a songwriter with EMI, her path to fame in the Christian music industry seems set, yet Audrey was never one to shy away from difficult topics. Since her debut album, The House You're Building, released under Sparrow Records in 2010, Audrey has explored the more difficult subjects of the Christian faith. While many Christians today avoid the discomfort of addressing taboo subjects due to either shame or uneasiness, Audrey Assad has fueled her music and style and worship with her direct and personal experiences. This honesty has served her well with her debut being named Amazon.com's Best Album of 2010 in the Christian music category and reaching number 12 on the Billboard Christian music charts. Her follow-up heart came out in 2012 and peaked at number 18 on the overall iTunes charts. Over the course of her career, she also continued to partner with well-known artists on tour, including J.J. Heller, 10th Avenue North, and Jars of Clay, as well as working with Chris Tomlin. 
stepping away from Sparrow on good terms to pursue an independent release under her new label, Fortunate Fall Records, Audrey ran a Kickstarter campaign to release her following record, Fortunate Fall. Proving just how much people warmed to her unique brand of honesty and struggle, she raised double the required amount in the set time frame. Her fourth album, Inheritance, was released in 2016 and was comprised of hymns with the exception of two songs she co-wrote with Matt Marr. Audrey's latest album, Evergreen, is her first record of original music since 2014. She has said it was created due to obstacles in writing worship authentically and was influenced by feelings the Syrian war ignited due to her heritage. A compelling piano-based project that explores purpose, justice, and theology, she is responsible for almost all of the intricacies of sound and production, admitting that she even played drums for the first time on this record. Throughout the years of her musical career so far, Audrey has admitted to her journey away from fundamentalism in order to embrace what she calls open hands around everything, including her faith. Beyond everything, Audrey Assad is a fighter, overcoming her own addiction with pornography as a teenager and later supporting her husband when he was diagnosed with cancer. She is known for her honest and open approach to issues which she has witnessed and many she has experienced firsthand. Like Gunger, she is known for breaking the Christian music industry silence on platforms like Twitter to speak out against injustices throughout our nation and our world. She identifies as Catholic by the skin of her teeth and continues to write and perform in a genuine style that captivates her audience. Jessica Morris spoke with Audrey from her hometown of Nashville, Tennessee, about Evergreen, the racial and class divide in the Christian music industry, and why shame is root of our biggest struggles. This is Audrey Assad. Firstly, I just want to touch on Evergreen. I know you released it earlier this year. Um, and mm-hmm. what struck me about it was that it's so, so honest. You're like so openly wrestling with faith and with doubt and there's such a purity to it. Can you tell me a little bit about the story of how like it was created, not just in the studio, but like in your own personal journey? Sure. Um, so I am a very heavily conceptually driven person when it comes to albums and when I don't have a strong concept like something really compelling to me internally and um, emotionally and spiritually, it's really hard for me to conjure up a bunch of songs about things. It's just not really the way I've ever worked. And before I released Evergreen, it had been uh, since the year 2013 that I I hadn't released a full album of original material since then. And so it had been almost five years since that Mm -hmm. happened. And so... um, part of the reason was that I yeah I mean I I wouldn't even say wrestling with faith it was sort of like um a few years journey through nihilism I love that (laughs) did it but kind of against my will like it wasn't what I I wasn't like trying to go there it just was where my mind and heart were living and were trying not to live but couldn't figure out how not to live there Mm -hmm. and so I felt really disingenuous writing worship songs because I'm like I don't even know if I believe in God to be honest I don't know if I believe in meaning so it was hard for me to be authentically myself and write you know songs about God and so I put out a hymns record because I really felt um, still very attached to those songs. That was called Inheritance. It came out in 2016, and um, it came from my heart as much as it could. And I think I put that into the music, like where I was wrestling. I, I really put that into the actual sounds on the album. So then, basically, um, I came to a place where 
I was too compelled by Martin Luther King and his writing to give in to nihilism because I thought to myself, if this man, you know, I'd been reading a lot of his books, not just his quotes, you know, on Martin Luther King Day here in the States. Um, I found myself super compelled by his commitment to this idea that the arc of the moral universe is long, but bent towards justice. Yeah. And I thought if he can say that after all he saw and witnessed and experienced, like, who am I to disagree, basically? And it kind of became a choice I made. I just sort of chose, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk away from the idea that nothing means anything and that there is no justice in this universe because, frankly, it was too hard to bear. I just couldn't function. I was like, I don't like my life like this. Yeah. Um, so I chose not to – it wasn't really some mir- miraculous, like, God spoke to me. I mean, maybe he did, but maybe it was through Martin Luther King and just this kind of will in my own heart, you know. Mm-hmm to seek something better. And so basically Evergreen was born out of this return to hopefulness um, that took me years to get to. And I finally felt like I could honestly write about faith and God. And um, it was what came out of that. Over the skyline to see this fear I lift my eyes to the heavens Nothing sensible has yet appeared In this irrational season I love that Martin Luther King played such a role in that. I did not expect it, but that's so cool. It makes <laughs> it makes sense. I love that quote too. I have friends quote it all the time um, yeah. who who like aren't Christians and it's yeah. it's something that I've remembered as well over the past few years as well and I'm like, oh gosh, yes, I just need to hold on to it's something. It's quite a statement. Yeah, it's quite a statement in view of everything that we see going wrong, you know. And um, I respect Mark, Dr. King a lot, and he gets kind of neutralized, I think, a lot uh, by well-meaning sort of um, people who just haven't really read the breadth of his work. And he was very honest about the state of things, but then he always returned to that kind of place of, of hopefulness, and I found it very inspiring. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you touched on it a little bit, but can you tell me a little bit about how your faith has changed and grown over the years? I, I know that you, um, I don't know if converted is the right word, so please correct me if I'm wrong, to Catholicism in 2007, mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. is so interesting. Can you tell me just a little bit about that? But also, like, if, if you, as you mm-hmm. feel comfortable, what your faith looks like now. Yeah. So, yeah, I did become a Catholic, or I guess you could say converted. I think that's an accurate word. Um, when I was, yeah, in my early 20s, and that was sort of precipitated by this kind of beginning of the unraveling of my fundamentalist uh, upbringing. Theologically and in all other departments, I was starting to explore for the first time what the church outside of my small kind of insular denomination believed. And I found orthodoxy and Catholicism and was really surprised by all of the misconceptions I had had about it. And, uh, was pretty enamored of the sacraments and the kind of the mass and all of that was really appealing to me and the history of it being how old it was. I just, I found myself really drawn to liturgical worship and that's 
I was at the cusp of a wave of young people doing that, but it did start happening much more, at least in America, we're seeing it a lot more, you know, uh, a lot of evangelicals moving into more liturgical traditions, yeah. moving back towards that. And so I was, you know, one of those people <laughs> and, um, I really plunged into it wholeheartedly and it's been about, um, 11 years now almost. And, or I guess, I guess it's been 11 years already. Yeah. Crazy. Wow. So I, um, I fell out of that honeymoon phase pretty quickly. The Catholic church has a lot of problems just like everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, some really big ones and I don't even need to name them, but you know, obviously we have lots of really scandalous is such a tired word at this point, you know, sort of horrifying things coming yeah. to light. And, um, However, I think, I think faith for me now is, uh, well, I would say that belief is what has changed the most because I really have intellectual certainty about almost nothing when it comes to, um, specific ideas and dogmas about God and the nature of God and the way God has revealed, you know, God's self in the world. Like, I don't know what I actually think, but belief has become for me a practice of setting my eyes on, setting my heart on something. And so I think the biggest transformation I've undergone isn't even in the specificity of what I believe as much as the way that I engage with those things. Mm -hmm. I am, I am so much more compassionate to my own doubt. Now I give it a seat at the table of the discussion, you know, in my, in my interior world. And when I wasn't doing that for many years, it really created repression and anxiety. And I was, I actually started experiencing physical symptoms from this repression of these questions and this fear that I had of being alone in the universe. And I mean, it just didn't work for me anymore. I was like, okay, I have to get to a place where doubt isn't this kind of thing that's okay as long as you get over it. I just have to learn to live every day as I am that day and say, okay, however you are today, this is the you that's participating in the life of the world. So, you know, just welcome yourself as you are, because if God welcomes you as you are, you have to welcome yourself as you are, or else you're not experiencing the abundant life that God offers. And so that became my approach. And I just don't worry so much about the specifics anymore. For a while, I obsessed over them. And now for me, it's much more about faith and practice. Um, especially when it comes to justice. That's been my the salvation for me from cynicism is participating in justice work. Justice. the Christian music industry has that changed or challenged your perception of God or his people or is that sort of just being just part of your career um and your like sort of your journey of belief and and how you see God as sort of retains the same in that capacity yeah well it's a great question I mean I can only speak to my experience of Christian music industry in the states for the most part mm. um because it is a sort of specific animal here, like in any oh, place, yeah. you know, we have our own subcultures and histories here. One thing I will say is that my 10, 12 years now of experience in Christian music business 
has shown me how very segregated it is racially Mm -hmm. and even denominationally as well, because being a Catholic, you know, being one of the few Catholics in the, in the industry here, I've seen the kind of prejudices there, but, uh, those are loosening, but it's very racially segregated for the most part. You know, you have their sort of like different genres where you encounter people of other, um, skim colors more like southern gospel i mean sorry black gospel music um southern gospel music is 99.9 percent white and black gospel music is all black and then christian pop is mostly white and it's sort of this very class specific thing as well so i i sort of started to feel a little disenchanted i think in part because of my experience of christian music business because it didn't feel like what I thought it should be in some ideal world, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, but people who are famous in this industry don't tend to speak up about that kind of stuff out of fear of losing record sales, you know? Yeah. And I just kind of got fed up at some point and was sort of like, I can't live like this. Like, I would rather be unfamous and unsuccessful and feel like a whole person who has opinions and who speaks about them. And so I think there's probably some penalties I've paid for that, but I just really came to a place where it just the, for me personally, I felt like I was living inauthentically um, by not calling this stuff out. And so, um, you know, I've kind of taken my own path a little bit because I, I really just couldn't, I just couldn't keep engaging in that way and ignoring all that stuff. And so, there's a lot of great people in this business. I love them dearly and I'm not calling anybody out in particular at all right now. It's just that that was sort of where I came to, you know, that's the kind of place I came to. God on a cross, who would have thought it? This place looks nothing like Eden, but there is no issues you've spoken out about made a sound about is immigration mm-hmm. and n- knowing that you have an American Syrian heritage yeah which is so unique in the Christian music industry and Nashville right. itself how has sort of that background and sort of that that identity in some capacity shapes your passion or the fact that you feel like you need to speak up about some issues not just immigration yeah. but other things that are important sure. to you yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, it was a slow awakening for me, actually. I what I, I grew up in a Middle Eastern and American home, so it was mixed culture. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I and so it was always part of my identity, for sure, in this kind of uh, shallow sense, like the food, the language, the relatives. I mean, that was all part of my life. I identified as half Arab, for sure, but I never really woke up to the state of things when it comes to racial relations, racial bias, Mm -hmm. racial injustice, racial disparities. That really didn't become obvious and evident to me until about seven years ago, which really the the Syrian civil war broke out 
and I started to open up my eyes and pay attention to the way that America was reacting and how the things they were saying were kind of, I was surprised by them, especially in the Christian world. And I started to wake up to what was actually the reality all along, which is that there's still a long way to go in uh, equality and in uh, the eradication of racial bias and racial injustice and disparity in this country and around the world. And so it was like this kind of, uh, I woke up to one thing and suddenly I looked around and I was like, oh my gosh, like it is not what I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought, I had thought America was this melting pot and this like place of equality and freedom. And in some ways it is, but there is a long, long road ahead of us in that department and all those departments. And so I think what happened is that I, I woke up to the sort of state of America's view on Arabs through the Syrian civil war, breaking out and getting into the news and encountering people's attitudes and ideas all of a sudden. And then, uh, yeah, I just kind of came to a personal place where I realized, oh, my life on this earth is so short what am I really here to do? I'm not, a, I'm not a, an activist on the Hill in DC at this point, you know, however, I'm not really just here to make people feel better. This isn't my job. I, I love that people find sanctuary and rest in my music, but if I believe, and I was going on this whole faith journey at the same time, if I believe that justice is a sort of integral part of the kingdom of God here on earth, I can't just, pretend these things aren't happening and sing about heaven when heaven is supposed to be coming here now. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of had a new kingdom theology developing where the last will be first and the first shall be last, but not tomorrow, not a hundred years from now, not when the world is ended, but today, now that is our call. I really believe that yes, Christians is to start turning the kingdoms of this world upside down. And I just couldn't live without speaking out about that anymore or else I felt like I was living, you know, a double life, a false life. And so it kind of all happened together for me, yeah. you know. address was your work with the anti-pornography movement and I was really intrigued when I heard that you spoke about it purely because so many females and especially people in the church don't speak about that and I wanted to know like why you chose to start speaking about it so openly because it's one thing to go through it yourself and to sort of go through it with your closest friends and family but why did you share that with with people well you know I think um one of the most ongoing journeys for me as a person and then as a communicator has been beginning to understand that the root of all of my worst habits and sins is actually not rebellion, but shame. And that we talk, we give this kind of lip service about what Jesus came to deliver us from We say, you came to save me from my sin and shame, as if those two things are the same and they don't have any distinction. Shame is a very specific phenomenon that is a psychological kind of reality in everyone's life. And if I look at the state of the world and look down around and and think about, okay, why, why is misogyny something? 
that we're dealing with? Why is racism something we're dealing with? Why is addiction something we're dealing with? Shame is at the root of every single one of those things. I firmly believe that, and I think research is bearing that out. And so as I began to communicate about pornography, which, I mean, my understanding of even that, you know, and even the science behind pornography addiction and all of that is, is evolving all the time because science is coming up with new and better research on this all the time. So when I started, there was a lot less out there for women. Mm-hmm. But I felt instinctively that shame was the reason that I had remained trapped in the habit for so long. And it was the reason, it, it's sort of like uh, this weird thing where it's like, okay, it's not the worst thing in the world if you have problems with this. A lot of people do. Part of the reason that it becomes so prevalent in in someone's life is because they believe they're the only person. So they don't go outward. They don't communicate about the reasons and the motivations and the sort of uh, psychological underpinnings of what they're doing because they think they're the only person doing it. And I think that's especially true for women. And so something in me said, okay, well, what are you, are you ashamed of this at this point? Like you're, you're talking, you know, you've got to like put your money where your mouth is if you believe that what drives this habit in your life is shame, then like act out against that by just speaking it as a matter of factly to people. And I think it really works for me in the sense that I, I, I really just don't have any embarrassment about the fact that this has been part of my life and continues to be something that I work through my relationship with because my relationship to it with shame has evolved so much and changed through communicating honestly about it with others. And so I hope to inspire that same sort of freedom for other people because I actually believe that, you know, the secrecy and the hiding is what ultimately drives it and uh, keeps it going. So I guess I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I see, I, I'm hearing myself talk to you today and I'm thinking like, wow, I guess I'm just a really hard on myself kind of person, but that's not how I've always been. You know, it's been a, it's been a process and shame is, you know, a big topic that I sort of, focus on a lot because I think it breeds uh, prison. music is that you're not afraid to explore the darkness and really dive into the shame uh, that so many of us feel and I was reading through an old interview uh, this was probably back in about 2013 and you talked about with Christian music if it's only meant for people who believe the same thing as you it's probably not good music do you still stand by that in terms of the fact um, that we need to share our own pain and our darkness and our struggles in music so that it relates to a broader audience, whether you want to divide it by a Christian audience or a secular audience or whatever that means. Hmm. Well, I guess I'll put it this way. You know, there are a lot of records I listen to that are non-quote-unquote Christian. Um, they're not made for Christian audiences. They're not made by Christian producers and You know, Christian music is a phrase that we're all struggling to define, but one of the ways I define it is that there's an industry that mostly lives in Nashville, Tennessee, um, made up of record labels, production teams, studio owners, players, writers, and they're all believers for the most part. 
and there's this kind of um there's a bubble there you mm-hmm. know it and not just theologically and ideologically but musically as well because it's sort of like uh it's all the same people making all the same things all the time you know I mean I started to see that in my work here in this town and say wow like oh this guy produced that and that and that and he wrote on that and that and that and then these players played on this record and that record and this and I was like oh gosh like I feel like that's a little bit um uh risky creatively because you're not there's no fresh blood around here you know I just kind of felt like um so that so the idea of like Christian music could be defined many different ways but that's the way I kind of define it as music made in this industry by people who are speaking to one specific audience and by people who are making most of that music um so I think I just really I just feel capable of more than that and I feel compelled to more than that and I don't I hope not to cast judgment on people who are doing it that way honestly truly I don't it's not my desire but I guess I started you know hearing from people on my socials and my fan mail who are like, I am an atheist, uh, but I feel emotionally compelled by these ideas, even though I don't believe them. I can't stomach most of this stuff, but you speak to me. And I, I felt my heart just sort of started warming to the people who aren't being made. This music is not being made for them. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of those people, you know, at the end of the day, I am not someone who fits squarely into the market um, and demographics that these labels are marketing to. And so I just narrowed my idea of, you know, uh, like who, who only has one or two albums in their collection that are spiritual in tone and they turn to them when they're grieving or giving birth or going through a divorce or doubting the meaning in their life and the purpose of their life. I want to be one of those albums for those people, you know? And yeah. I think over the years, I just developed this mission in my life where it was like, I'm not trying to convert them. I'm just trying to be there for them. I'm trying to furnish a room and invite them to sit in it. And they can come to whatever conclusions they want to come to in that room. I just hope to be a link in the chain of their growth and wholeness, you know, and healing. And it, I don't know. I, I don't really have some manifesto about Christian music other than that. It was just... I really got tired of making music for people. I felt like already had way too much content being thrown at them by the same teams of people all the time. From my short time that I lived in Nashville, I hear that. And that's one of the reasons I was so interested in starting this podcast because I was so disillusioned by it. And so, Mm -hmm. and I, I I would hear so many stories from musicians or people who worked in the industry, like behind the scenes and I'd be like, okay, so how does this work and, and how does everything sit and, and where does faith actually sit in that? And um, mm-hmm. um, it, so from a media perspective, I get that. That makes so much sense yeah. to me. You know, at the end of the day too, I actually respect it far more in this business when people make it obvious and clear that they're making business moves. They're about a bottom line. You know, these companies who run these record labels that, that put out all these albums that we all grew up on are owned by these larger parent companies who come to them at the end of every year and say like, what about your numbers? What about the bottom line? That's all we care about it. You know, that's all that the parent companies care about. And so when 
it's not something to be ashamed of. I think it's just to be doing business and trying to sell records. And like, I know that's what we're doing. I think that what, where it gets weird is when that's not acknowledged and that's not spoken about. Instead, it's kind of couched in like faith and ministry language. It's like, don't you want your records to reach more people and reach more hearts, which is a nice way of saying you're not selling well enough. We need to change our approach. <laughs> And as yeah. a business person, I just remember saying to like label executives, I'm like, just talk to me about the business. I am not like, don't try to pastor me into a decision financially that you want me to make. Tell me what's up and I want to adjust. You know, mm-hmm. I just like, I, I think I just got, I don't, I don't think it's uh, so bad to be about the money if you're a business, but it's when you're not admitting it, that it gets creepy, you know, and yes. it can get weird here in that way, you know? After everything I've had After everything I'm lost Lord, I know this much is true I'm still drawn to every interview is ask my guests some sort of random questions that don't seem to really fit anywhere else. Okay. Um, so I just want to throw a few at you. Sure. Um, you mentioned before that you are sort of one of uh, like the keynote Catholics in the CCM industry. Um, yeah. What's the weirdest question someone has asked you about that? Hmm. Goodness. Well, I tend to get a lot of the same ones. It's usually why do you worship Mary? And oh, gosh. why do you, why do you talk to dead people? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's mostly that. I don't think I really get many more questions than that, you <sighs> know, but um, I do encounter people's anger at the Catholic church on a regular basis, which I contend I count as a privilege because uh, there's a lot of legitimate reasons why they feel it. And if I can be a merciful voice and a gracious recipient to their anger, I feel like that's, um, hopefully a healing thing but it's uh yeah it's that's about the extent of it pretty much yeah um thanks for answering that with grace that's someone who's in the (laughs) protestant denomination thank you i appreciate it sure (laughs) yeah um wanted to ask what knowing that this is coming out near christmas do you have a favorite christmas record or like a favorite holiday song or anything that you like to play around this time of year i i sure do i don't i tend to be a little bit grinchy about christmas music but which shouldn't be surprising to anybody. <laughs> but um, I do have a few albums that I play right around the start of Christmas week. That's usually where I really start okay. Listening. Good to know. Yeah, I don't I don't get into it earlier. I just I can't do it. Um, but there's a few that I do really love. One of them is Jars of Clay's Christmas album, and I think it's called Love Came Down, and it's mm-hmm. it's really great. Um, then uh, I love Sixpence Not the Richer's Christmas album. Classics and I would say, other than that, I listen to a lot of, of kind of Scandinavian instrumental wintry music. I don't really do a ton of Christian, Christmas stuff, um, mm-hmm. but those are two that I really love. And, oh, I do really love the Sarah McLaughlin Christmas album, too. Those are a good ones. Um, that's about it, though. Nice. Yeah. No, I like that. It makes sense to me. And I love the fact that there's Scandinavian <laughs> music in there. I'm like... Yes, that makes sense. Like, yeah, I like that. They have that. a very, just a dark corner of the world, you know. They don't have a lot of daylight. It's like my scene, <laughs> for sure. If you're going to sing about winter, totally will. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, last question. You recorded your first demo in 2003 um, and was signed a few years after that. If you were to go back in time and speak to yourself right when you finished recording that demo, what would you say, knowing all that you've been through now? Ooh, oh, my goodness. Um, I think that I would tell that person, you think you know things and you know absolutely nothing don't panic when you find that out. (laughs) It's okay. It's totally normal. (laughs) How cool is Audrey, guys? She was so lovely to talk to. I feel like she just has so much knowledge and wisdom to give if you just listen. It was such a privilege to speak with her. I'm so glad we could share that with you. If today's conversation with Audrey has prompted you to maybe ask for help or you'd like some resources around curbing pornography addiction or things like that, you'll find a couple of resources in the iPod description below. That's another episode done. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed talking to Audrey. Next week, we are sticking with the Christmas theme in our last episode before Christmas because we are speaking to the very talented Sarah Reeves. Sarah is a pop worship artist based in Nashville and her album Easy Never Needed You came out a few months back. We talk about her Christmas EP, because who doesn't love a Christmas EP, called Let It Snow. And we also talk about her really tumultuous journey. She was actually signed as an year old and now the 29 year old is releasing her first album in about seven years you can subscribe now to between you and me on itunes spotify or stitcher download our previous episodes that you have a backlog to listen to on these long car trips that you're about to go on over the holiday season we would love to keep you company can't wait to see you guys next week it's going to be super fun we'll see you then Between You and Me podcast. Stay connected by visiting www.betweenyouandmepod.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. For more Christian news, reviews, and interviews, get plugged in to jesuswire.com.